We've been looking at John 9 so far. Last Sunday, we focused on verses 1 through 7, where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And uh, he basically, Jesus takes some of his saliva and he mixes it with some dirt and he makes mud, kind of a mud pie, if you want to call it that, and he anoints the man's eyes with it. And then he commands the man to go to the pool of Siloam and he tells him, take yourself and walk over there with these mud pies on your face and go over there and wash it out. And uh, the guy obeys Jesus's command and when he washes his eyes out, he has sight. And we were kind of speculating at the end of the message what that must have been like just to open your eyes for the first time and looking around and seeing things and it just must have been unreal. And so he takes off and he goes... He goes and begins to tell people about what has happened to him. And this morning, we are going to look at five reactions to this miracle and really ultimately to Jesus, not just the miracle. So we're going to look at five reactions to the miracle, to Jesus, and we're going to parallel them to uh, today because that's what I like to do, right? We'll see if we can see ourselves in these examples And uh, so please take your Bibles and turn over to John 9, verses 8 through 23. Let's begin with the first reaction that we see here. The first reaction we have, we see in verses 8 through 13, and that's the reaction of the man's neighbors. And I think in the same verse, it says those who knew that he was also a beggar. So, but primarily I'm focusing here on the neighbors. And we see it here. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. So the the very first people to respond to this guy after he's given sight, after he's healed, are basically his neighbors. These are his neighbors here, the people that live in close proximity to him. And, And so what that tells us is it tells us that the first place he went to after being healed was where? Home, right? So he goes, he gets healed, he can see now, and and I don't even know how he finds his house because he doesn't know what it looks like. Before he probably listened and found his way that way, but now he can see. But in any case, he goes home, and I think what's happening is before he enters the house or at some point he gets home and his neighbors realize Look at this guy. He's walking right up to the house like he's not blind anymore. What's going on? And so they begin to interact with him. Now, this detail of him going home first and his neighbors discovering him first, it's it's an important detail that's going to come into play when we get to the fifth reaction. So just kind of remember that. The first people to see him are his neighbors, which tells us that the first thing he did was went home after he got healed. And, And I would describe his neighbors and I used it for the sermon title, they were bewildered. When they discover him, they they don't know what to make of it. They don't know what to make of him. Uh, This miracle was was so out of the ordinary for that day. So, And I I think it would be today, right? I mean, obviously, somebody who's never seen, all of a sudden they can see. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. But it's just so shocking and mind-blowing that those who are in close proximity to this guy, those who live near him and all that, they they just, and they see him on a regular basis, and they're they're completely familiar with his daily pattern. They see him leave the house in the morning. They see him make his way. Somehow he makes his way to the temple where he can go and beg, because that's the best place to beg if you 
uh, you're blind or whatever because there's people that are going there to worship and they tend to be generous when they're, you know, worshiping. And so they, they know this guy, they know his pattern, and yet they see him and they're totally perplexed. They are bewildered by what they see. And, and they begin to debate with one another, as you see in the text. It says, and they're saying things like this, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Is this the same dude that we've been seeing sitting and begging all these years? And it says, uh, some said, it is he. So some were agreeing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the guy. And then, and then, and then notice in the verse where it says, no, but he is like him. <laughs> So, so some people are saying, yeah, obviously it's him, and others are saying, nobody looks like him. That's kind of weird, right? No, it's not him, but it looks like him. Uh, and I tell you, I was thinking about this in terms of our own transformation by the Holy Spirit. The, the change that the Holy Spirit brings in our lives should and will cause a similar reaction to those who are in close proximity to us. I remember when I... Uh, first got saved, and this was, I don't know, 17 or 18 years ago or so. I always add a few years to it, so it was probably more like 15. Um, I'm like a kid who wants to be older. Well, kids, you don't want to do that when you get to be my age. You want to be younger. But I remember when I first got saved, the guys that I worked with were bewildered. They saw a difference in me and with the way that I, with the way that I was now speaking and behaving, and they were just tripping. They were like, dude, what, what's going on with this guy, man? Something's going on with him. And it wasn't like I was putting on an actor or something like that. I was just a different person, and I was behaving differently. And, and they were just tripping on me. They, one, one guy, he would say, what happened to the Phil I know? Where'd that Phil go? Where is he? And then he would even say jokingly, what did you do with him? Is he, you know, in a, the trunk of a Cadillac somewhere? You know, where is he? Did you, did you bury him in a Vegas desert, you know? Where is the old Phil? And he would even say, I miss him and I want you to bring him back. That'll kind of tell you how familiar he was with the old me and how much negative interaction and partying and stupidity we had together. And what I would tell him, when he would say, where's the old Phil, bring him back, I would say, that Phil's dead. He's dead. He's been crucified with Christ, he's been buried with Christ. He's been resurrected unto new life. Now, of course, he didn't understand any of the things that I was saying, but I just said, I can't bring him back. He's dead. Now, that's not to say that the old Phil didn't show up once in a while when he got mad or angry or frustrated or felt like his paycheck was too small. Uh, but for the most part, completely different person, and people noticed, and this guy wanted the old Phil back really bad, and I just said, no, he's gone. He's dead. Now, with this one guy in particular, this went on for years, like, once a month, he would say, bring the old Phil back. And I would have to remind him. And I think that he felt that if he just kept repeating himself, he would somehow summons the old Phil. And all of a sudden, I would be retransformed back into my old likeness. And uh, it, it just never happened. And really what he wanted was for me to re-engage in all the, the old debauchery and foolishness that he and I uh, engaged in when I was an unbeliever. But in any case, that change was startling and bewildering for those around me, especially at work. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul describes the change true disciples of, of Jesus' experience. Now, it's not a, an exhaustive text, but it does talk about the change. And he, he presents a list of, of sins that keep people 
out of the kingdom of God, from sexual sin to dishonest practices. And then at the beginning of verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, some of you were once like that. Some of you were this. Some of you were that. Some of you had these characteristics or these kinds of sins in your life. The idea there is that people have been changed from what they were to something else. And as the scripture says, to a new creation. And I used to be a foul-mouthed drunkard. That's what I was. And yet the Holy Spirit gave me a new heart and, and even a new attitude. With that new heart came a new attitude toward those sins and toward all sins. And more importantly, toward God Himself. He made me unrecognizable to my fellow workers as I began to speak and act differently. And the same thing will be true of all believers who are truly born again. There's just no mistaking it. And, and I, I would say this as a warning, if there is no noticeable change in our lives, there's no reason to believe we've been born again. And that's one of the biggest things today. People think they can just add Jesus to their life and do their thing or whatever. And No, Jesus, when Jesus is in your life, you're in His life and you become a different person. If you've been born of God, you will begin to be like your heavenly father. You were born to your parents, you kind of pick up the traits of your parents and things. If you've been born of God through the Holy Spirit, are you not going to become like your heavenly father? Absolutely. You'll begin to bear fruit. You'll have the fruits of the Spirit. You're going to love Jesus like crazy. You're going to start to hate sin. All of that should be there. And I just think it's a great parallel here. We see a guy who's changed and he's different and the neighbors notice the difference, primarily in a physical difference in his sight, but I'm making a spiritual parallel. Now, while his neighbors were going back and forth trying to figure out if this is the same guy, because some were saying, yeah, it's him, and others were saying, no, it kind of looks like him, he kept saying, notice in the text, I am the man. Not like, hey, man, I'm the man. Like, I'm, I'm the dude. I'm, I'm the guy that you guys are talking. You're talking about... Me in front of me, I am the guy who used to be blind. I'm the artist formerly known as Blind Man. Remember when Prince changed his name? Very confusing. He, he, he's saying, I am the man. He's sitting there telling them. And the way that it's written in the original language, it's emphatic. So he's, he's like, no, I am the man. You guys are talking. I'm right here. See me? I'm right here. I know you're talking. Look at me. I am the guy. He's trying to convince them that he is the one. He is the guy who was blind. And, and what do they do when he says this? They begin to grill him for an explanation. In other words, tell us what happened. They said, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And he says, so I went and washed and received my sight. Just a, a very clear, honest, transparent, non-theological answer. The, the guy shows up and he makes mud, he puts it on my face, he tells me to go wash, I do it, I open my eyes, bam, I can see. And his name is Jesus. And now, these neighbors and these people who knew him were not satisfied with his clear answer. And they actually wanted to question Jesus. So they wanted to go to the source of his miracle and they said to him, well, where is he? Where then is he? If he's done this for you, where is he? 
And he said, I do not know. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was not in close proximity to this whole spiel playing out. He was probably nearby, but the man did not know what Jesus looked like. He knew what Jesus' voice sounded like. He, he knew the Lord's touch in a sense, but he didn't know what he looked like because he had never seen him before. He was blind. So Jesus could have been nearby. He could have been, I mean, you, you know, if you looked out, you could have picked him out in the crowd. Who knows? But they want to talk to him, and they want to see Jesus, and they want to talk to Jesus. They want to interview Jesus more like they want to interrogate him, you know, nosy neighbors. And uh, when he says, I, I, I can't point him out, I, I don't know where he is. In utter frustration, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. So they're not satisfied with his response, with his answer. They're not happy about the fact that they can't interview Jesus because he can't point him out. So what do they do? They take him to the religious leaders. And in all honesty, this is protocol. In that day and culture, if you were healed of an ailment, leprosy, blindness, uh, speech impediment, anything, you were supposed to go report yourself to the rabbis and show that a miracle had occurred, and they would document that. Well, in a sense, here they're doing that, but not for those reasons. They just want to figure out what's going on and investigate and be a bunch of busybodies. So they take him over to the Pharisees who are what? Religious leaders, those masters of the Mosaic law. And I think people, another parallel, people today react to Jesus like the man's neighbors in a, a bewildered way. Uh, quite frankly, they just don't know what to make of Jesus, right? They hear the name Jesus, they hear things about Jesus, and they just don't know what to make of him. They're bewildered, they're confused when they hear the name Jesus. Some go as far as to deny the fact that he ever existed. Oh, he's, uh, you know, it's a fairy tale. He was not a historical figure. He never lived. They'll explain him away. Others will acknowledge the fact that he's a historical figure, but they'll flat out deny why he came. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? They deny the fact that he came as our savior. Oh, he was a historical person, but he didn't come to do that. Some call him a good man. They kind of reduce him down to that. Well, he was a good person. He was a good man. And usually when people say he's a good person, what they're implying is that he's a good person like me. Well, you're not a good person, and neither am I. Some would call him a great teacher, right? You've heard people say that. He was just one of the best teachers to ever walk the earth. Some call him a deceiver. Primarily Jewish people do, even today. Young Jewish children are, are born and bred into that ideology. From, from birth, they, are, they have it pounded into them that Jesus is the great deceiver. He is like an antichrist. Stay away from him. He tried to lead Israel astray. This is literally what they do even today. But very few people call him Lord and Savior. Well, what are you talking about? Isn't the church like a billion and a half? Well, America is 86% Christian. If you believe that, you've been hitting the pipe. I don't think there's a billion and a half Christians in the world. I can't imagine. Maybe there are. I don't want to take anything away from the Lord. And so often those who do call him Lord and Savior, their life doesn't line up with their testimony. They say that, but there's no discernible difference in their life. Well, people are bewildered today about Jesus. They don't know what to make of him. 
But at the end of the day, when, when, you, when you say, well, he is the savior of the world and, and you must believe in him to have eternal life in these things, they're just, ah, no, nah, that's not for me. I'm going with Darwin. A lot of bewilderment today. That's the first reaction. Let's look at number two. The reaction of the Pharisees, verses 14 through 16. Now, according to religious tradition, it was unlawful for people to engage in certain activities on the Sabbath, that day of rest. What am I talking about specifically? What couldn't you do on the Sabbath? Well, making mud pies and washing your face in a pool, illegal. You can't be making mud pies with your hands and doing that kind of labor. You can't be going and washing your face in a pool. In fact, you couldn't even bathe on the Sabbath. You couldn't do that. You couldn't even prepare food. You couldn't even cook meals on the Sabbath. They, they, they had a whole list of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. It was unbelievable. I don't know. I guess this would be us on the Sabbath. What are you doing? Can't answer you. You turned. I had to. I mean, you literally, it was so crippling. These rules and these regulations that they developed, you just couldn't even be remotely close to a normal person on the Sabbath. And what does verse 14 tell us? <laughs> now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh, somebody broke the law. The first thing the Pharisees did here is they tried to establish a chronology, a timeline for when the healing occurred. And they wanted to discover the method that was used. In other words, they were looking to see if the law was violated by Jesus and this guy. And it says here, so the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. Now, we're going to need a little information here. This is when they begin their investigation. How did you receive your sight? We want to find out if there's an infraction here. And how did, what does he do? He replies to them, he put mud on my eyes. Now that's strike one, and I washed strike two, and I see. Who cares about that, right? He just literally tells me, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. I love the simplicity of this guy's answers. Well, let me tell you, in the ninth quadrant of the theological survey, he doesn't get all weird and technical. And he just says, well, he just put mud on my face and on my eyes, and I washed. Look at the reaction. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. Now, they're speaking of Jesus. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And then it says, and there was a division among them. So what you see here, the Pharisees were split. There was a division between them already. There were some who kind of sided with Jesus and others who wanted to kill him. But you can see a split that occurs right here. Now, I would describe one group of Pharisees as legalistic. Okay, and I'll kind of define what that means. One group was legalistic. The other was logical. By definition, a, a legalist or a legalistic person is basically one who creates and or adheres to extra-biblical regulations, and then ultimately what they do is they seek to follow those extra-biblical regulations and make everyone else they know or come in contact do that. So 
by definition, in the simplest way that I can describe it, a legalist is one who looks at the Bible and makes a whole bunch of extra rules, adds them to the Bible, and goes around telling everyone what to do. And there are legalistic people in the church today. There are legalistic people in the church today. An example would be those who say drinking alcoholic beverages is sinful. Some Southern Baptists will tell you you're going straight to hell if you smell a beer. I smelled two beers last night at a wedding. I guess I'm going to hell. I actually drank them. Now, I'm not promoting alcohol consumption. Some of you probably need to stay away from that because you have an addictive personality. But I'm just saying there are some people that look at the Bible and they say, look, wine consumption, alcohol consumption, sinful, 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 stay away from that stuff. And here's what they do. Not only do they say that, and that's the standard they live by, but they criticize others who don't live up to their standard. They criticize others who have a glass of wine with a meal or enjoy a nice beer or have a, a delicious cocktail. Oh, they're just sinning against the Lord and look at this stuff. The Bible does not teach this about alcohol. It does not teach this about wine and beer. Now, it warns us. Wine is a mocker. Beer can be a brawler, meaning they can lead you to do things you shouldn't be doing. But what the Bible actually strictly warns us against and forbids is drunkenness. Drunkenness is sinful because you get drunk, you lose control, you lose your senses, you, you lose reality, a sense of reality, and it leads you to do things that, that you wouldn't normally do. And then you get involved in all sorts of sin and all that stuff, and it's a terrible situation. But the legalist basically says all drinking is sinful. Wine, beer, it doesn't matter. But the Bible clearly does not teach this. So that would be an example of a legalistic person, one who creates, misinterprets even scripture and creates regulations and then begins to bind others according to those regs. The legalistic Pharisees were doing the very same thing with the Sabbath, the day of rest. They were doing the same thing. It wasn't an alcohol-related thing, but they were doing the same thing with the Sabbath. According to their extra-biblical Sabbath regulations, which included 29 categories, not 29 different things you couldn't do on Sabbath, 29 categories of things you could not do. Okay? That's a lot of stuff you cannot do on the Sabbath. And according to their regulations in these 29 categories, it was sinful to do anything that remotely smelled of work, using your hands to construct something, do something, that's work, that's forbidden. This is why you couldn't cook or bathe or do these things. If, if, you, if you had a trench outside of your house, and I don't know what you'd be using it for, but if you had a trench there and a neighbor fell into it, you couldn't even pull him out of it. You'd have to stay in there till the Sabbath was over. Well, I'm sorry, Jim, I'll come get you tomorrow. It's the Sabbath, can't do it. Pharisees would probably stand over the hole going, don't touch him. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll break the law. It was unreal what they came up with. When Jesus made mud pies and, and healed a blind man, apparently he violated some of their extra-biblical Sabbath regulations. MacArthur wrote, in their eyes, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus had broken the Sabbath. Not because he had violated any of the divine Sabbath regulations revealed in Scripture. In other words, not because he actually violated the Word of God, but because he had ignored the restrictions and extra-biblical applications of the rabbis. 
the rabbis who were the ones that were cooking this stuff up and, and enforcing it. He says, for example, the Lord had made mud from his saliva and some dust, which supposedly violated the prohibition against kneading on the Sabbath. You know, like kneading bread. You can't knead things. You can't take flour and make bread. You can't knead. He says that's the violation here that he thinks is, that's in question. And he goes on to say... Uh, the rabbinic regulations also forbid giving medical treatment unless a person's life was in immediate danger. So unless this guy is about to croak, can't help you, you know, which was obviously not the case with the blind man. Was this man facing death? No, he just couldn't see. So because he wasn't in imminent life danger, Jesus violated the Sabbath by healing his eyes. It's craziness. Now, the legalistic Pharisees then claimed that Jesus could not be from God because he did not keep the Sabbath. So that's, that is the indictment by them. But as MacArthur clearly stated, Jesus did not violate the Sabbath according to God's rules. He violated it according to their rules, which means there was no true violation. And, and if you've know the life and ministry of Jesus and look at the Gospels, he, I feel like he almost deliberately violated their little extra biblical rules. He consistently in the Gospel accounts violated these extra biblical rules. He would not be bound by man's rules. He refused to do it. And it thoroughly infuriated these legalistic Pharisees. And here's what's so frightening about the legalist. What we see here is that legalistic people lack the ability to differentiate between their rules and God's rules. It's all the same to them. They cannot tell the difference between what God has clearly declared as prohibitions. And then you need to go into the whole social implications of those prohibitions. You need to dissect the Mosaic law and look at the different facets of it. Was this something that was to, to make the Israelites look different from the people around them? Was it one of those kind of social rules? I mean, it just, it's very complex, but they can't tell the difference between their rules and God's rules. And they go around saying, these are God's rules for you. Put that beer down. That's God's rule. Don't you do that. Now, that's the legalistic group. They're exploding because they see Jesus as a, a, a Sabbath breaker here. And all Jesus was breaking was their extra regs that they added, which no man, especially Jesus, the God-man, is bound up by and has to obey. The other group of Pharisees was logical. They were logical. An extraordinary miracle had occurred, and they began to argue with the legalistic group. They began to argue that it would be impossible for a Sabbath-breaking sinner to pull off something like this, right? Wait a minute, you guys are getting all spun out over the fact that he needed something together. Did you miss the fact that he actually gave a man sight who's never been able to see before? This has to be an indicator that he is a unique, special person, speaking of Jesus. They used logic uh, uh, people uh, that are born blind don't, you know, just kind of naturally get their sight or something like that. Something has to transpire and take place. So the logical conclusion is since man cannot conjure that, an outside force, somebody has to do that for him. And so they're saying, no, 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 no. You're saying he's, a, he's just a Sabbath-breaking sinner? Sabbath-breaking sinners don't do what this guy Jesus just did. That's what they're saying. Now, 
they did not say that Jesus was from God here, but they certainly implied it. Believing Pharisees such as Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea, they were probably in that group of the logical guys. So one group is legalistic and just rejected him. Another group weighs out the information, does a quick investigation and says, this guy, something has happened with this guy that's extraordinary. Logic tells us that the one who healed him has to be special. He's not just a run-of-the-mill sinner. That's their logic. People today react to Jesus like these two groups of Pharisees, legalistic or logical. One group denies Jesus because he does not fit into their belief system. He does not fit into their religious system. That's the legalist. I've created this or I adhere to a false religion and Jesus doesn't fit into that, the things that Jesus says and does, so they reject him based on that. And that's just a form of legalism. Jesus certainly does not fit into evolution. And evolution is a religion just like all other religions. You say, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's a belief system. It has a founder it has an object of worship, which is the creation. It's a religion, and Jesus doesn't fit into it. So the legalistic evolutionist says no to Jesus. That's one group. The other arrives at logical conclusions about Jesus because they look at the data, they look at the information, they arrive at logical conclusions, which is a, which is a good thing. That's a great thing. As long as those logical conclusions do not stop short of personal repentance and faith. Have you ever met a person who thinks of God in terms of pure logic only? There's no faith. They say, it is impossible for all things to have, to have come from nothing. When you look at creation and the stars and everything, logic tells us that somebody had to start all of this. And there are people that believe that, uh, the logical reality of all things cannot come from nothing. How do you get all things from nothing. Logic says impossible. And so there are people out there that, that stop short of faith and repentance. They believe in God logically. They say, well, there's got to be a God out there. I don't know who he is or whatever. Well, the Bible tells us who he is. The gospel tells us, well, I don't care about that. There just has to be a divine creator or something out there that started all this. Three, the reaction of the man. We're talking about the guy that was healed. Verse 17 so the Pharisees said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, speaking of Jesus, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Now, the man basically reacted like the second group of Pharisees here, the logical group. I would describe the man as reasonable. He employed reason and drew a a logical conclusion based on reason. He's very much like the second group of Pharisees here. He's not yet sure about Jesus' Messiahship. He's not quite sure about that yet. He knows that there's a Savior. This guy's a Jewish guy. He knows there's a Savior coming and all that. He believes as the rest of the Jews did, but he's not convinced of Jesus' Messiahship yet. He needs to have more interaction with Jesus. He needs to find out more about him. And, and we see in verse 38, he would come to believe. And I, I think he was kind of in the process of it here already. But in verse 38, we see him totally believing and even worshiping the Lord. But here's the deal. He was reasonable. He was logical. So he deduced that Jesus must be from God. Because guess what? Only people who are sent from God can 
perform these kinds of miracles, can overcome the laws of nature in this way. So this man uses reason and says he is from God. He takes a little further than the logical guys, actually. He's from God. He's a prophet. He recognizes the divine power there. MacArthur, again, he says, the man's bold and emphatic reply shows that he grasped the reality that the, spiritual blind, the spiritually blind Pharisees refused to see, that Jesus was sent from God. And his words reflect a growing understanding on his part as to the true identity of the man called Jesus. That's what he referred to him in verse 11. And I like what D.A. Carson adds here. He says this, and I think this is just a great way to look at this, the process this man who was blind is in. He says, The man's eyes are opening wider. He is beginning to see still more clearly while the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over with blinding theological mist. So his eyes and even his spiritual eyes, in a sense, are beginning to open. Something grand and extraordinary has been done. This man must be a prophet. He's got to be from God while his adversaries and judges are becoming more and more dopey and blind. Their theology, their legalism would not even permit them to even consider Jesus as their Messiah. And people today react to Jesus like this man in a reasonable way. Like logic, reason is is also a good thing provided that it is accompanied by or better yet produced by true saving faith. Calling Jesus a prophet is not a bad thing because he is a prophet. He is the prophet with a capital P. But if we stop there, we're going to be in trouble. We can't stop at the fact that he's a God-sent prophet. He is not just a prophet. He's not just the prophet. He is Lord and Savior. And we must receive Him as such if we are to be saved, if we are to receive eternal life. The enemies of Jesus, whom John often refers to uh, as the Jews, were comprised of various religious leaders, scribes, chief priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, etc. And and this, this group of Jews, religious leaders, they were absolutely just infuriated with this man for calling Jesus a prophet. It just lit them up. And you know know how they responded to the man's testimony? The, The man just says, I had mud on my eyes, I washed, I could see. He's obviously a prophet. This is all he says. And they become so just angry and bitter and hateful, they literally begin to deny that he ever was blind to begin with. This guy's an imposter. He was never blind. They rejected the healing. That's what the Jews were doing here. And they would not change their mind. And I'm not talking about believing in Jesus as Savior. I'm talking about they would not even acknowledge the fact that this man had been blind or healed. They wouldn't even do it until they received uh, maybe what I would call irrefutable evidence. We need information here. I do not believe that you were blind. I do not believe that you were healed. That's the Jews' angle here. Now look at four. Now we're going to look at the reaction of the Jews. 18 through 19. And it literally just says it here. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight. Isn't that incredible? They just flat out reject a, a... 
undeniable reality. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight. And look what it says. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. We need to get the people in here that know this guy best to find out if he really was blind and got sight. They literally subpoenaed this guy's parents and had them come to the temple where they were stationed. And when they arrived, when his parents arrived, the Jews asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? This is the critical nasty interrogation of this guy's parents. And I would describe the Jews as demanding but ever denying. Demanding but ever denying. These guys, this group of Jews who were the religious leaders, not all of them but a collection of them, and they were all different makes of religious leader, these guys were always asking Jesus, look at the gospel accounts, always asking him to prove himself. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. This is one of the things that characterizes the Jews in John's gospel account. Always demanding evidence, demanding evidence. You say you're the Messiah, prove it to us. You say you're the Christ, Prove it to us. You say that you're the son of man that Ezekiel referred to. Prove it to us. You say that you're the son of God. Prove it. Over and over they did this. But when Jesus provided evidence through various signs and wonders, what did they do? They rejected him. They just, they demanded signs. They demanded evidence. But then they, it would always result in the exact same response. Total denial. They would deny him. They were ever denying. Now, it actually got so bad with these guys that Jesus pronounced a curse on them and then refused to perform any, any more miracles in front of them. They just kept asking for it, and he would perform things. Now, he wasn't just doing it to cater to them. He was helping people and, and proving his messiahship. Now, it wasn't like, hey, prove it to me, and then he'd just poof, perform a miracle. He wasn't performing for them. He knew who they were. But he did perform miracles and all these things. And at, some, at one point, he was just like, I, this is a, you're a wicked generation that demands a sign. And I'm not going to perform any more miracles for you. You can read about that in Matthew 16, 4. Matthew 16, 4, where Jesus just says, no more, no more. You, you've seen the soup Nazi? No soup for you. No miracles for you. No more. I'm not doing any more. not performing for you. Now, the truth is, no amount of evidence will convert a person to Christ. No amount of evidence will do that. Evidence cannot change the human heart. Evidence can persuade the mind to a degree, but it will not transform the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can cause new birth, a new person to come alive in Christ. Only he can do that. Evidence can serve that purpose and that, that end, but it cannot cause it on its own. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. I recently watched a, a, a movie, and I know it comes from a book. It's called The Case for Christ. Maybe, has anyone seen that movie? I think it was on Netflix for a little bit. It was a pretty good movie, but it, it tells the story of a, a former atheist's conversion. 
His name is Lee Strobel. How many of you have heard that name, Lee Strobel? He's a pretty well-known guy. Maybe you've heard of him. Now, the, the movie, I don't want to sound overly critical, but I want to make a point. The, the, the movie was, it was a pretty well-made movie. And I've seen almost every Christian movie that's ever been made. And uh, they, they tend to fall pretty short of a good quality movie. I don't know if we just can't afford the actors or what our deal is, but Christian movies can be very cliche, you know, very predictable. And, uh, and some of them are great. Uh, but in any case, this was a decent movie. And it was, it was somewhat uplifting. But sadly, in my opinion, it fell quite short of the biblical account of salvation, of what the Bible actually teaches about salvation. The movie, and maybe his book, but the movie for sure puts, I would say, I, I, would, I would just go out on a limb and say it, it puts the entire emphasis of his conversion on his own hard work and analysis of Christianity. In other words, the movie begins with this atheist that hates God, and at the end, he now loves God because he was able to prove that God is real. So his conversion, at the end of the day, we would ascribe the credit for that to his own research and hard work and discipline. There is never a moment in the movie where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Not once. Not for that. And I have a hard time with that. Now, am I suggesting that Lee Strobel has never been converted? Heavens no. Am I suggesting that he's not a real Christian? Of course not. What I'm saying to you is that the movie falls, it, it just totally fails to point to the correct source of his conversion, and that's the Holy Spirit. It does not do that, and I take great issue with that. At the end of the day, who gets the credit for the, what's taken place here? The man does because of his hard research and all of his effort and all that. Now, I don't think Lee Strobel ever even intended for people to think that way, but that's what I read. That's what I saw when I watched it. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's just because you have a particular leaning and you try to find that in everything. Well, hallelujah. <laughs> I tend to be that way, but I look at stuff and I want to see how accurate it is to Scripture. And quite frankly, here's my opinion. You want to tell me your testimony and if all you do is talk about yourself, I don't want to hear it. I don't care about your testimony if all you're going to do is talk about yourself. I could care less about it. You start telling me about Jesus and the work that he did in your life and how he took a wretched, destroyed sinner who was headed for hell and he intervened and came into your life and sent the Spirit, tell me about it. I will sing it from the pulpit. What do you got? Give me something here. But if all you're going to do is point to yourself and what you did and how you came to Jesus, eh, I could care less. And we live in a culture today that has a particular theological leaning that is the opposite of mine, and it puts pretty much all the emphasis on man's free will and on man's work and on what man does and what man can do and all that. It never talks about what man can't do. But according to some people's view, everyone can get saved. All they have to do is just do the research and believe. When I study the Scripture, I see salvation being totally connected and tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. And without His work, nobody's getting saved. Nobody. And so am I criticizing Lee Strobel? Yeah. No, but I'm saying, you know what? Throw me a bone here, man. Show me what God has done here. Now, now did God convert the guy if he's a real believer? Absolutely. But people fail to recognize God's work in that, and they see their own work. And you know what our work is prior to Christ? Filthy rags man who does things for God apart from faith in Jesus Christ, receiving His Son, 
It's all filthy rags. In any case, I'm trying to illustrate to you what I'm talking about, evidence. It's not his analysis and his hard work that got him saved. It is the Holy Spirit working through that process and bringing him to a saving relationship and realization in Jesus Christ. If the movie had at least said that at the end, glory, never did. And maybe I need to go back and rewatch it because my wife's looking at me like, it did that. <laughs> did it do it? I don't think it did. You don't care. She doesn't care about the things I care about. She just tries to watch movies because they're movies. Isn't that what movies are for? Not for me. People today react to Jesus like the Jews, demanding but ever denying. You met somebody like that? Prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that Jesus rose on the, on the third day of the resurrection. Prove to me these sorts of things. You begin to unpack the biblical and even the historical account for these things, and you, you do a good job, and you're kind, and you're, and, you're, and you're merciful, and you're showing them the evidence, and what do they say? No, 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 no. Give me the evidence. You give them the evidence, they deny, deny, deny. No matter how much evidence you give them, they're not persuaded. They don't change. I've had atheists tell me over and over, prove that God exists. Prove that Jesus rose, et cetera, et cetera. But like I said, after you unpack information and evidence, they just, no, they're not interested in it. They demand, but always deny. In my experience, people that demand evidence just like to argue and beat their chests. Well, I defeated another Christian. Ha <laughs> ha. That's what they do. They just beat their chest and like to argue. So what do I say? Don't get sucked into fruitless debates with them. Instead, share the gospel with them, right? Quit trying to prove that God exists. Just talk about Jesus. Tell them that they need Christ as their Lord and Savior. I don't care how nasty they get with you. And, and don't forget to pray for them. Spurgeon dealt with some of this stuff during his day. He really did. Uh, it was a, a period where they, you know, they were trying to use intellectual means and these sorts of things to kind of persuade. And he's just like, forget about all that. Just stick to the gospel. He said this, and he was so right when he said it. The best argument to bring sinners to believe in Jesus is Jesus. And he's the last one we go to. Well, if you go look at Haftom, you'll see God's fingerprint. We talk about all this stuff. It may be true. Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. That's the reaction of the Jews, ever demanding but ever denying. And lastly, number five, the reaction of his parents, 20 through 23. 20 through 23. His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. And they said this, Ask him, he is of age. <laughs> Why are you talking to us? He's right there. You can see he's of age. And they said, He will speak for himself. Now, earlier I told you that, that the first thing the man did, obviously because of the reaction of the neighbors, the first thing he did was go home, right? If this had happened to you, wouldn't the first people that you'd go tell or whatever would be your parents? Now, this guy is not an older guy. He's of age, 13, 14, 15. Who knows? I think he's probably a teen. But in any case, you get healed. You've never been able to see. You get healed. Who are the first people you go to to show? 
your folks, right? In verses 20 through 21, his parents confirm, they literally confirm that he is their son, but then they claim to know very little and absolutely nothing about the miracle. We have no idea. They replied, we don't know how he sees or who opened his eyes. Man, I just can't believe this. When he got home, did his parents not ask him a few questions? Like, like, how is it that you now see? Who did this to you? What has happened here? You'd think that his parents would have been asking these questions. As a parent of a blind child who suddenly uh, comes home seeing, wouldn't you ask a few questions? I certainly would. I'd want to know what happened. How did this happen? Did the man who'd been healed here, did he refuse to answer his parents' questions? Did he refuse to tell them about the man called Jesus and the mud and the pool of Siloam? Oh, I can't believe that he went home and he didn't talk about what happened. It's totally unlikely because he was willing to answer his neighbors' questions and give them all the details in verse 11. Why would he give information to his neighbors but not to his parents? What happened here? How is it that his, the people that are closest to him have no idea about what happened to him? How is that even possible? What happened? It's simple. His parents pretended to know nothing about the healing. They pretended. They played ignorant. They lied. They lied. Why? Verse 22. Look at the parenthetical statement. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. In response to Jesus' growing popularity and spiritual influence over many, many of the people, the Jews came together to form an agreement. Anyone who says that Jesus is the Christ, that's Messiah, or even even begins to even lean in that direction, we're going to take that person and we're going to kick them out of the synagogue. We're going to throw them right out of the synagogue. What does it mean to be removed from the synagogue? It means to be excommunicated from Judaism. It means to be ostracized socially. It means to be treated like a fourth, fifth, sixth class citizen in that culture. You're kicked out of the synagogue. You have no life. You are a person who is going to be despised by the rest of the populace. It's a terrible, terrible punishment. It was in that day. Horrible. We can't, we're like, whatever, I got kicked out of a church, I'll go to another one. It didn't work that way back then. Boy, they had your name on file in all the synagogues. Well, here comes Bob, don't let him in. You just, you had, you lost, you lost your social life, your religious life. You were ostracized and excommunicated. It was a horrible, horrible, dreaded punishment. And the parents feared that if they gave the details about what happened with them, because I knew they knew it, if they told the truth, the Jews would punish them by putting them out of the synagogue. To avoid social and religious disaster, a catastrophe, they basically pointed to their son and said, we don't know, ask him, he's of age. Let him tell you. They put it entirely on him. And I would describe his parents as self-preserving. They were self-preserving they obviously believe that believe their son's testimony about Jesus. He comes home and tells them. They're like, oh, really? That's awesome. They knew who Jesus was. Everyone did. They might have even believed in Jesus as the Christ in a sense because many, many people were coming over to him. But they were unwilling to provide 
detailed testimony in front of the Jews because they feared the repercussions. They feared the repercussions. People today react to Jesus like the man's parents in a self-preserving way. Unbelievers and believers do this. Unbelievers see Jesus as a threat to their sinful lifestyle, so they reject him in order to preserve it. The unbeliever self-preserves by rejecting Jesus because he does not or she does not want Jesus to disturb their life. Self-preservation. Really, all it is is sin preservation. Similar to the man's parents, believers can become fearful of what others might think of them or even do to them if they speak up on an issue or talk about Jesus. So they what? Self-preserve by keeping quiet. When God prompts them through the Spirit to speak up, they go, nope, I'm not going to say anything that's going to get me in hot water. Even the Apostle Peter did something like this, but he, he decided to take it to a whole other level, boy. He went all the way and even denied that he knew Jesus. Boy, when he was called to an account, this is the man who was touring with Jesus. He acted like he didn't even know who Jesus is, and he'd been with him for three years. He denied him three times, right? And then, cock a doodle doo Remember the story? Luke twenty-two fifty-six through 60. Boy, Peter did this. Jesus not only predicted Peter's denial, John 13, 38, he also forgave and restored him, John 21, 15 through 19. And you know what Peter did? He became one of the most boldest witnesses for Christ to ever live. So much so that when he was told, if you deny Jesus, you'll live. If not, we'll kill you. He said, I cannot deny my Lord. And he was crucified upside down. Closing. How do you react to Jesus? Which one are you like? Are you like the man's neighbors, that first example, first reaction? Are you not quite sure what to make of Jesus? Are you bewildered? Let God's infallible, completely truthful word, the Bible, set the record straight for you. Jesus is the Son of God, John 1.34. Jesus is the Son of Man, John 9.35. Whom God sent to the world or into the world, John 3.17. And, and through His death, burial, and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.3-4, He saves us, He saves sinners like us through His death, burial, and resurrection. And guess what? Those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Mark 1, 15, Acts 16, 31. Let God's infallible words set the record straight for you. There's no, there's no reason for you to be built, bewildered. The record is clear. He is God and He came to save us. Believe in Him. Don't be bewildered. Secondly, are you like the legalistic Pharisees? Do you deny Jesus because He doesn't fit into your belief system? I'll say this as plainly as I can. Your belief system is going to land you in hell. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. John 14, 6. Toss your belief system in the trash. Throw out your religion and put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. He will not only save you, 
but he will sanctify you and completely transform your life. Maybe you're like the legalistic Pharisees, but you're actually a believer. Get into the Word of God and find out what God's Word says about certain things and affirm the Word. Don't add to it. To add to it is to bring a curse into your life. Don't do that. Third, are you like the logical Pharisees? Have you examined the evidence and arrived at logical conclusions about Jesus? Make sure you do not stop there. Logical conclusions are good, but they won't save you. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Logic's great, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. Are you like the Jews? Are you always asking for evidence? Prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that Jesus rose from the grave. My friend, no amount of evidence will persuade or convert you. You, my friend, are spiritually dead in your sins. You will not believe in Jesus unless God regenerates you through the Holy Spirit, John 3, 3, and grants you the gifts of repentance and faith. 2 Timothy 2.25, Ephesians 2.8. Stop asking God's people for evidence and start asking God for mercy. Just put an end to it. It's ridiculous. Maybe He will be merciful to you. The sure sign of His mercy is that your attitude toward Him changes and that you desire to repent and put your full trust in the one whom you despised your whole life, Jesus. Fifth, are you like the man's parents? Are you a self-preserver? Do you see Jesus as a threat to your sinful lifestyle and reject Him in order to preserve it? Have you not heard about God's law and justice toward the wicked? He will judge the wicked, Ecclesiastes 3.17. He will punish the wicked, Isaiah 13.11. He will destroy the wicked, Psalm 145.20. A sinful lifestyle apart from Christ, it just results in judgment, punishment, and destruction. Is that really what you want? Is your sin worth that? Have you not heard about the abundant life that Christ offers? John 10.10, a life of perpetual love, mercy, grace, acceptance, hope, joy, security, purpose. One of the most important things that we see today, identity, identity. Everyone's trying to carve out for themselves an identity. Well, I belong to this or I'm that. There's no greater identity than son or daughter of God. What else? Fellowship. Fellowship. Real, meaningful relationships. You take it from an, a former rebel and unbeliever. Life in Christ is, is infinitely superior to a life of rebellion and unbelief. To a life of sin. Deliverance from God's justice and you know, His wrath and inheriting eternal life. They're certainly the greatest benefits believers receive, but they aren't the only benefits. We get a new life in Christ, and it is the best life that fallen sinners like you and I can experience here on earth. 
Or maybe you're a believer who is fearful of what others might think of you or do to you if you speak up on an issue or talk about Christ, you know, proclaim the gospel and, and what you do instead of doing that, instead of living out what you're called to do, instead of obeying that great commission, right? Instead of doing that, you self-preserve by keeping quiet. Now, this happens from time to time, doesn't it? What are we going to say that just never happens to all of us? It does. Isn't our flesh weak? Mine is. There are times where, where I know I should have said something and I don't because of fear. Maybe that's you. Maybe you got a scenario playing out at work or somewhere where, you know, God has just been urging you just to just to speak the truth in love and and you and steer clear of it because you're worried about the repercussions. Maybe that's you. The good news is Jesus forgives his disciples when they do this, just as he forgave Peter. Jesus once said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a sobering warning. Matthew 10, 28. There is only one who is worthy of our fear, and it isn't man. It is never man. Never. But thanks to the person and work of Jesus, we do not have to fear the one who is worthy of our fear, God, because... Jesus satisfied His wrath and justice for us. He's done something extraordinary. We should, however, respect and honor God because He is holy, because He is truly awesome. And we should also serve Him by sharing His gospel. Amen? Amen.